Once again, welcome. My name's Jerry, one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to be here with you and open God's Word together. Um, if you have not been with us, and I've uh, already met some brand new families here this morning, thanks for coming. If you've not been with us, this is the very last um, segment in our series called I Would Believe in God, But... And really would strongly encourage you guys to go uh, onto our website, northwestlife.org, listen to some of the podcasts, some of the previous messages. This is the fourth one in the series. And the idea is that there's a lot of us, a lot of your neighbors, maybe even a lot of people that are here this morning that would say, I want that relationship with God. I want to have that kind of faith that I see in other people or that I see in scripture, but there's some sort of ceiling that I find myself just kind of bucking up against that I just can't get over. And we wanted to bring to you, again, the idea that what people are rejecting or what's keeping them from from that intimacy with God is not an accurate view of who God is, but it's a distorted view. And so what we've tried to do in this four-week series is just kind of dismantle and destroy some of those. In the first one, we talked about the distorted view of God that's the remote control God. That somehow this king of the universe that has created everything and is all-powerful is somehow at our beck and call at any given moment. God, you need to give me this, and why didn't I get this? Why didn't I get that? Like some sort of remote control that we can uh, somehow have some sort of influence over the God of the universe and how that's, that's not accurate. In the second week, we talked a little bit about destroying the idea of a killjoy God. In other words, like God is some sort of angry grandpa or some you know, cantankerous neighbor. Anybody got one of those? Okay, maybe your neighbor's here, so be careful, okay? But like some sort of just negative Nancy or some sort of just killjoy, nobody wants to have any fun, and the idea that God's like, I'm gonna put you in this tiny little box and you can't do anything and you're just gonna live a life of boredom until you get to heaven and do more of the same. All right, then we destroyed that notion that says God's not like that. God has got a freedom and of goodness and those rules and regulations. The ones that are in scripture, not the ones created by man, are meant to protect us. Right, and then several weeks ago, we talked about the third week, which is destroying the idea of a, what we call the goosebumps God, which is basically all about feelings and emotions. Maybe you had some sort of experience where you just really felt something strange at a mission trip or at a conference or during a church service, and the fact that you don't feel that anymore means that you're somehow distanced. And we talked about several ways that you can understand that idea more. So I encourage you to listen to those. If you've got friends that are struggling with some of these sorts of things, I encourage you just to send them an email with a link so that these messages based on God's word can really have influence even outside of this community of believers. Well, this morning is perhaps the heaviest of all four messages. And uh, in God's divine sovereign plan, he allowed us when we were planning this four or five months ago, this particular message to come on this particular Sunday. When we've had, within the United States, in grander than that, within the world, an absolutely unbelievable span of uh, several weeks or even a couple of months of natural disasters and unspeakable evils. And this message 
comes right on the heels of that. And what we're going to talk about today is what do we do when God seems heartless? When our circumstances around us or our circumstances in the world or in the country seem to not make any sense at all. You know, you think about these last couple of weeks and these last couple of months, and I actually came across a picture that I thought was really fascinating, taken from outer space, from one of our space stations. And this was the United, this is the United States, the, the vast majority of that. And this was taken on one day. And I want you to notice a couple of things. You see those big three swirls right there? Those are three hurricanes in succession headed towards the Caribbean and Mexico and the Gulf Coast and Florida. You've got the first one was Cadia. And then you've got Irma right after that one, which we've all heard of that one. Then you've got Jose. And now we've got another one coming up the coast, right? But isn't it so fascinating and so sad how compassion weary we become? Because several weeks ago, you know, we, we had this hurricane and we took a big offering and sent it down to, uh, to Texas, to Houston area to help out people there. And then you've got uh, more needs in Florida and now we got needs in Puerto Rico and it just doesn't seem to end. And we lose track of which hurricane was that. I don't remember the name of which one that one was. But what's interesting about this picture as well, look all the way up there in the upper left. See all those gray, foggy, kind of swirly type things? If you're listening on the podcast, you're just going to have to imagine. We wish you were here. But anyway, all of that is smoke that you didn't even hear about. Massive wildfires all throughout the Pacific Northwest and Montana and all those areas out west that show up on the satellite image because of the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres that were burning out of control. But you didn't even hear about it. And what you also don't see on this snapshot satellite image of one split second in our world's history, what you also don't see right there is the country of Mexico right there. And you can't see the devastation from the two separate earthquakes that took place, 7.1 and 8.1 on the Richter scale. Lives lost, property destroyed, people displaced, turmoil, anxiousness, confusion, devastation. And man, I'll tell you what, we sit here, and I don't know if you're like me, but I'm, I'm afraid to pick up my phone and look at the CNN highlights when I, when I wake up in the morning. And then, of course, we got a week ago today, Sunday night, the unspeakable evil of a premeditated plan of somebody to do as much devastation and murder as possible. And I really hope that that messes with you. And I hope that, as a matter of fact, as we're diving into this, that you're really asking yourselves those questions. Because God's not afraid of those questions. And when we think about this God that we're singing about that, that is omnipotent, which means all-powerful, if we're singing about that, then we have to be asking ourselves a question, well, if God's all-powerful, why did he let that happen? Why didn't he stop it? And if God is sovereign or all-knowing, did he know that was going to happen? Why didn't he do something about it? And so what it says to us about God in our weak human moments is, okay, God, if you could have stopped these things, all this devastation, all this heartache and turmoil, and you didn't, what does that really say about you? And those are some deep questions to ask, and some would say dangerous questions to ask, but people have been wrestling with those questions for thousands of years. 
And what's funny, in Scripture, God doesn't seem to be afraid of those questions. Some of his deepest saints, he wants that open dialogue and them to pour out their heart and say, I don't understand, why are you doing what you're doing? As a matter of fact, David in Psalm chapter 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I've tried to do so much for you and remember like with the giant and everything and how you came through and how great and victorious that was and battles and now I'm hiding in a cave and people are looking to kill me and God, I feel like you've forgotten me and I'm not even saying I feel, I'm saying, Lord, you have forgotten about me. And the illustrations abound. You even look at somebody like Job, a man who was righteous in all of his ways. Scripture says God blessed him with lots of possessions. He certainly seemed super generous. He would share with people. He had a great family. Everybody loved God. He was righteous, doing everything right. And then God bragged on him. And in my weak moments, I'm like, all right, Lord, I want to be a good servant. I want to serve people. I want to be generous. But don't feel like you need to brag on me at all. (laughs) You know? Because God's like, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, oh yeah, okay, well, you think he's so great? Let's really see. So Lord, you don't ever have to say, has Satan considered your servant Jerry? Just leave me out of it, I'll do my best, but you don't need to, right? But we feel that sometimes deep down inside, don't we? Like we wanna trust God, but, but man, what if all this happens? And man, poor Job, you know, he lost his family, he lost his riches, he lost his health, he was in constant pain, And even his wife, the one who was meant to be, you know, hitched onto him forever and encourage him when when he's at his weakest moments, she's like, this verse right here in Job chapter 2, his wife's like, you know what, Job, just go ahead and curse God, yep, go ahead and do it, and just die, and just get on with it. Gee, thanks, honey. But we realize that level of devastation and evil, and does God seem heartless in the face of it all? Well, if you're feeling that this morning, if you're not a believer and that's the ceiling is like, all right, if God's in control, why does all this happen? Or if you've been going to church for decades and you want a closer relationship with God, but deep in your heart of hearts, you're like, I want to believe and I want to get closer to God, but still, why did this happen? We want to let you know that you're not alone here this morning and we're not afraid of that question. I can't tell you that I'm gonna come up with some magical answer that nobody's ever had before, but what I can tell you is that there's some principles that I believe God has led us to through his word that will help us perhaps frame this up in a different way for a different perspective. So this morning, we've just kind of framed the question, how do we handle this false view of a heartless God? And three concepts that we want to talk about here, and the first one is this. We need to understand that we are living in Egypt, not in Eden. We are living in Egypt, not in Eden. Well, what are you talking about, pastor? Well, we know about Eden, and we know the Garden of Eden where God created, and there was peace and tranquility, and and the fellowship of God at the end of every day, they would walk together, and they would talk together, and they would share together, and for Adam and Eve, there was beauty, there was pleasure, there was nature, everything was in harmony. The Hebrew word shalom means the way things should be. So if you've got any Jewish friends and they use that as a greeting or when they're leaving and they say, shalom, it's not just peace, that's a part of it, but it's deeper than that. This is the way things should be. 
And I tell you, for some of us, I believe that one of the real reasons we look at situations, we're like, God is so heartless, life is so cruel, I'm so angry at God. It's because we think that we're living in Eden right now. Our expectation is, you know what, uh, my wife and I should have a growing, loving relationship. She should love me no matter what or how I act. And our kids should grow up to be godly, strapling young men and godly young women. And they should never talk back. And they should uh, be great members of society and make it into a great college and be healthy. And I should live to be 85 years old. And whatever retirement I have should continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. And at my workplace, I should be lauded and applauded no matter what and promoted and everything should go great. And that's kind of the expectation, that Edenistic expectation that we walk into life with. So when we lose our job or when we get the prognosis of cancer or when somebody close to you dies unexpectedly, the anger and the hurt is multiplied because we want this to be a certain way in life. But what I want to bring to you this morning is that we're not living in Eden. Reality is we're living in Egypt. And when we talk about Egypt, the illustration is in the Old Testament, God's people who were brought to Egypt and who were captive by the Egyptians and who were living in slavery. And there was, uh, you know, a pharaoh who was ruling over them and he was cruel and he was unfair and their lives were filled with futility and frustration. Was God still... With them, did God still desire relationship? Did God ultimately have a plan for them? Absolutely he did. But there was a temporary change of power. And what I'm telling you right now to help us frame up this idea is we need to recognize that right now we're not living in Eden. We're living in a broken, sin-cursed, evil world. And that breaks the heart of God. Here's a couple of verses that give us that concept. It talks in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 2. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He's in control of this world, temporary control. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is called the God, lowercase g, the God of this world, and how he blinds believers and weasels his way in and causes destruction. And in John, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus promises us that Satan, the enemy, is a thief and he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's where we're living. And I'll tell you for what, this week, for me, as I'm going through this, I can remember back when I was in seminary and like you're, you're preparing talks and preparing messages as part of a classroom kind of lab type experience and maybe it's, hey, here's three ways to deal with difficulty or here's gr three great concepts to deal with grief and like some of these other little trite, trivial type things. And I'm here telling you right now here this morning, diving into this, this week, it's not that kind of ethereal classroom experience. I'm diving in. I'm like, there's a lot of people in our congregation that are hurting right now. They've got names. And it's no longer just, oh, here's three ways to deal with disease. Those diseases have names in this place. And these are people that I've met with and wrapped my arms around and prayed for and prayed with and looked into their eyes and people whose kids are hurting and they don't understand and they're in the hospital. These, this is a reality for us. And we need to understand that these are not of God. It's not that God's heartless. Is that for a temporary season, our world is in bondage. And there's another force at work and he's got a name. 
the enemy, Satan. So what's our transition that we think about? How can we connect to this? Uh, you know, our expectations in an Eden-type society is that, hey, you know what? God's going to intervene. God's going to take care. God's going to make everything good. But that doesn't always happen. And I want to use this illustration that just jumped out of the text for me this week as I was pouring over this, and it has to do with a guy named John the Baptist. Right? Maybe you're not familiar with church, and maybe you're just visiting us. John the Baptist is not just a dude that you know, likes cookies and punch and receptions and wears a suit and tie. Baptist joke, sorry. That's my heritage. But this is a guy named John who would baptize people, and he was actually the cousin of Jesus, and he was the forerunner of Christ. So he came a little bit before him onto the scene uh, and, and was proclaiming that Jesus was coming, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, the Messiah was coming, and John took a Nazarite vow from the time he was born, which means that he didn't have any fruit of the vine, so no wine for John, very strict diet of not normal food, all right, locust and honey, is what he existed on. He was obscure. He lived out in the wilderness. And here's a guy that spent his whole entire life pointing to somebody else. John chapter 3, verse 30, sums it up. John the Baptist says, he that is Christ must increase and I must decrease. This guy's whole entire life was a ladder to cause other people to go higher and get closer and closer to God. That's what his life was. And so now John, after he baptizes Jesus and Jesus is now on the scene, he's healing people, he's teaching, he's doing miracles. John the Baptist is still around, he's still got disciples, he's pointing everybody to Christ, but at the same time he speaks out against a king who was involved in immorality and eventually gets thrown into prison. So I want you to think about this and I want you to connect with this. So here's John, now in prison, waiting and waiting and waiting. And notice what he says here in the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 2. It says this, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now think about that. John is having doubts. This Messiah, this one that he baptized, he was so excited about to bring reform, to bring change, and yet John's not feeling that right now or experiencing that right now because he's in a dark dungeon for standing up for what's right. And so his disciples sneak in somehow in a window. We don't know how it all happened, and John's like, hey, I got a question for Jesus. Ask him if he's gonna do anything or should we look for some other Messiah? Notice what happens here. Continue reading in verse four. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now you need to understand when John heard this message, he immediately is going to connect that with a messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It was written 600 or so years before Jesus. And so immediately John's going to connect with that. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what the prophecy said. He is the Messiah. Look at what it says in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. John's like, yep, I remember that. I was there. I baptized Jesus. I saw the Holy Spirit come down like a dove, anointing him and setting him loose for public ministry. Okay, I got it. 
It says to bring good news to the poor. That's the exact same phrase that Jesus used, right? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. There it is, the blind, the poor. Jesus is healing. This is all great. But guess what? When Jesus shared what he wanted the disciples to say to John from Isaiah 61, he omitted part of the verse. Look at the end of the verse that Jesus didn't say. To proclaim liberty to the captive and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. So just imagine John in his cell right now hearing it. Uh-huh, okay, good news to the poor. Got it, Isaiah 61. Got it, this is the Messiah. He's powerful, it's coming. No, that's all he said. He didn't mention the end of the verse. What's the end of the verse? Release those who are in prison. Set free those who are captive. The very thing that John was most concerned about, Jesus didn't even mention. In other words, what he's saying is, I am the Messiah but I'm not going to save you in the way you think I'm going to save you. So powerful for us this morning. Well, what ended up happening? Well, the door of the prison, they could hear the keys eventually, and maybe John was excited. He'd been praying for this, and and so the door's open, and who is it? Is it Jesus coming in? No, it's not. It's the guards, and they bring him out. And why are you carrying that sword with you? And you know the story, and somehow God's providential plan it was that john baptist would be paraded around and eventually his head would be chopped off and put on a platter and paraded around at a party heartless doesn't make sense where was god in that situation and yet this was god's plan god allowed it to happen and here john the baptist jesus called him the greatest born among women really the very first martyr if you think about it recorded in scripture doesn't make sense, but it's what Jesus wanted at that point. Jesus was sending a message. He promised us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. We're living in Egypt. We're living under bondage. This isn't Eden. And that helps us with the framing of this. Second point that we want to make from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, difficulty will take you deeper difficulty will take you deeper in second corinthians chapter 12 and if you have time later on today when you go home i would encourage you to read chapter 11 it's really pretty fantastic this argument that he's making and it's all centered around man i have done so much for god i've got a lot of reasons to boast paul's saying If anybody else has reasons to boast, I've got more. I've suffered more. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in prison. I've been rescued. I've been beaten down. I've got a lot of reasons to boast. But even so, God's not going to allow it. And it says here in Scripture that God allowed something to happen to Paul. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. We don't know if it was a physical ailment. We don't don't know what it is, but we know that it was something that Paul didn't understand, was angry and upset about, and he wanted it to go away. Anybody have any of those situations going on in your life right now? Well, Paul says, let's read here in verse 8 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in my flesh. 
And guys, my guess is that this was not, oh Lord, please take this away. Now I lay me down to sleep, you know, amen. No, my guess is this is three seasons of really difficulty, weeks and maybe even months where he's begging and pleading with God over and over and over again. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, that is the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul gives us this incredible perspective that says, yep, difficulties, trouble, we're not trivializing them. But what we are doing is recognizing that that's going to cause your faith to grow deeper and your roots to grow deeper. And as a matter of fact, the more pain you have and the more difficulty you have, it says the more grace God is going to pour upon your life. And Paul's like, I've experienced that. So therefore, I'm going to glory in this weakness, in this difficulty, because somehow God's going to come in with the power that I don't see and that I don't possess, and he's going to do something incredible in me. And I just love that perspective of Paul and that perspective of Scripture that says you're not going to see now, but someday you're going to see And I love even the account in the Gospels of Jesus going up on the Mount of Transfiguration where he brought Peter and James and John, three of his closest disciples, up on this mountain for this incredible scene where there was Elijah and there was Moses and there was Jesus. And it says the three of them were there transfigured right before their eyes like bright lights and these amazing, incredible saints who had died hundreds and hundreds of years earlier are all right there, the three of them, talking. All right, now think about this. So here's Jesus getting ready to enter into his most difficult part of his three-year ministry, eventually dying on the cross and suffering and the sins of the world and all of that. And here he is with Elijah and with Moses, two people that had pretty difficult existence, if you know your Old Testament, right? You got Moses, who was 80 years old, about ready to retire, sitting back, sipping sweet tea, watching his sheep, when all of a sudden God calls him into something he never thought possible, right? Bringing the people of um, Israel out of Egypt and all that, and 40 years in the wilderness, and all the complaining and everything else, and Moses, you know, experiencing all of that, the people grumbling and complaining. Now he's looking back, and now he's seeing what it was all for. And then here's Elijah, right? God does great, incredible things for him, right? But you remember our message back in the spring? Elijah got depressed. Elijah got discouraged. Elijah ran away from everything, hid in the cave, said, oh, Lord, take me. I just want to die. I'm the only one left. I'm worth nothing. But now when both those guys are there actually walking and talking with Jesus, they can look back on their life and see even in those dark, difficult moments, there was a deeper purpose Think about Moses and think about Elijah. Think about even the idea of the Jordan River. 
Right here was Elijah who's like, yep, I remember that Jordan River. That was a time of transition. Uh, a less known story than, than Joshua and the Jordan River, but Elijah saw the Jordan River part as he entered through and transferred the power to Elisha. And we saw the prophetic utterance there. And that's an incredible Old Testament story. And then you've got Moses. The Jordan River was so significant for him as well because it represented the promised land and that time of transition with Joshua when the river opened up and Joshua went through on dry land. And all of that all of a sudden is making sense because the Jordan River transition. Yes, I get it. Jesus baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Transition set forth, culmination. It's all making sense now. Moses is like, man, all that difficulty bringing these people out of bondage. Jesus, now you are bringing people out of bondage as well. I represented a type or an illustration of Messiah, and it took so long and so much difficulty, but now I see you are doing that as well. You are what it was all about in the first place. It's incredible. Now they see, whereas before they didn't. One of the things that's so important to us at Northwest is not just that me or another communicator is up here sharing a story or an illustration. One of the most powerful things that we can do is to bring you real live illustrations of people that have experienced what we're talking about here. And this third point that we want you to write down is the idea that pain brings a platform. Pain brings a platform. And when there's difficulty or things that you don't understand, unspeakable tragedies that come into your life, whether you like it or not, you are going to be propelled to a whole new level of influence. And what we've done here this morning is we've lined up a couple to come and to share with you and to bring you into their story and into their experience. So this is Blake and Aaron Irwin, and they've only been a part of our church really for a couple of months. God brought them to us. They've been a part of our life group that my wife and I have with several other newer families. They have experienced something that you have to hear about. Uh, One of the things as we talked and as they first shared this story with us was that it really can be part of healing to bring other people in to what you've been through. So I just want to take a couple minutes and and just allow them to share about uh, the events surrounding about a year and a half ago, and we'll just let you guys kind of share some of your story and some of your perspective, all right? Thank you guys for being here with us. Okay, so like Jerry said, our story kind of began about a year and a half ago. Last May, we moved here from Charleston, South Carolina for a new job for Blake. It all happened really super fast. Blake came for an interview, was offered the job the same day, and we had to put our house on the market and get ready to move. And at the time, we had a daughter. She she was about 18 months old then. Um, So we moved here about mid-May, and I was pregnant. I was about 25 weeks pregnant when we moved. Um, So that was fun, all the moving and being pregnant and having a toddler and two dogs, and it was great. So I had my first appointment the next week, and... The doctors noticed that maybe there was something not quite right, and they had me come back for an ultrasound, and they found out that our son was sick. He had several things that were wrong with him. They weren't really sure what was causing it. So that was about 26 and a half, 27 weeks. Everything Mm -hmm. had been perfect up until that point, and Mm -hmm. 
So it was just really shocking to find out that everything was not how we thought it was. At that time, the doctors really didn't expect him to live or be born alive. You know, if he was born alive, they didn't expect him to live very long after birth. At about 30 weeks, I went into labor, and I was hospitalized, and then he was born a week later, and just the day before, the doctors had told us that they'd never had a child survive with his condition that was born before 32 weeks, so that was really scary for us going in to his birth, you know, Hmm. knowing the doctors didn't really have much hope, but he was born alive, and they were able to stabilize him and help him breathe, and it was just a miracle that he was born alive. And during all of this, we had not had a chance to find a church, so we had no community here. We didn't. We know. We knew one person, and she wasn't super reliable, so it wasn't. I mean, we had to find care for our daughter, and we were just alone. It was really hard. So Maddox was in the NICU. He was in the NICU at UNC, which was great for us. I mean, we met a ton of people there that were also believers and. Everybody prayed with us, the chaplain, you know, everybody that came in contact with us was like, you just seem so at peace and so calm in such a stressful situation. And they were like, it could only be, you know, the peace that comes from God. And it really was. He had lots of ups and downs. We were able to visit him every day. We saw him every single day, which was hard. Sometimes we had to bring our daughter with us and we had to take shifts, but It was really special to us to be able to see him. We didn't get to hold him until he was almost a month old. So for anybody that's a parent, you can imagine how difficult that would be to see your child. There were days we couldn't even touch him because it would just make him freak out, I guess, is the best way to put it. They did discover that he needed surgery that would help fix one of the conditions whenever he was big enough and strong enough. And he was a little over a month old, they decided that that was the best time to do the surgery. So right before he was five weeks old, they took him and did surgery. Surgery went great. Everything was really good. You know, he was on the road to recovery. And then about two days after surgery, we got a call from the doctors that said, you know, you should probably come up. We're having a hard time oxygenating him. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to come. And that was in the middle of the night, which we had never had a call in the middle of the night before. So that was a little nerve-wracking. And then two days after surgery, we lost Maddox. He had gotten an infection around the time of surgery, and there was just really nothing they could do to help him at that point. At that moment when God brought Maddox home, and in the weeks and the months after that, and even during that five-week period, having to hold on to something so so loosely and just not knowing what were some of the things that sustained you or some of the scriptures or some of the things that God did in your hearts, even right in the middle of that tragedy? Well, like you said, I mean, we had to have something to hold on to. We didn't have people. So I think that was, you know, we clung to each other and to God even more than to get us through it. And we also like realized afterwards that maybe it was a test of our faithfulness to God and that he put us in that situation to see I guess not how we would react, but how we would react to him in the situation. Mm-hmm. And there were just lots of little reminders all along the way that he was right there with us. And it, it's thing like there are things that may seem silly to other people, but mm-hmm. it was like we were always in the right place at the right time, or the right person was always there. And afterwards, we kind of realized, you know, that maybe those things were preparing us for when we did lose him, and that it was just 
you know, that God was always there, right there with us. And we also had to lean on God because we didn't really have any answers from the doctors. And so it was more, what else do we do? Mm-hmm. That was really, you know, the only thing that got us through. Throughout the whole thing, we prayed for Maddox to be healed. And that's what we asked everybody else to pray for. And someone pointed out to us afterwards, he is healed, just not in the way we wanted. And things don't always go according to our plan, even things like this that are super difficult to process. But that was God's plan. And he was here for five weeks for a reason. And at the time, we, I mean, obviously nobody thinks, what's, what's the reason in all of this? But, you know, over the past year, we've kind of realized, you know, he's healed and it's just not how we wanted it. Yeah, Yeah, and I guess to kind of go along with that, you know, we've leaned on scripture a lot, kind of a few verses that we kind of clung to were uh, Romans 12, 12. Um, It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And that just really kind of stuck with us. You know, we had to rejoice in our hope and uh, just be patient through the trials and just know there was a bigger bigger planet at play. Psalm 139, where it talks about, you know, God is always there no matter how high or low you go, and whether it's in light or dark, he's, he's always right there with you. And while we couldn't always see him or, you know, feel his presence, it, it was something we just had to cling on to to know that, that he was there. Mm-hmm. And as kind of Jerry alluded to, the story of Job, um, there were just a lot, of, a lot of parallels there of we kind of felt like we were going through a, a similar trial, mm-hmm. and that was very reassuring to know that you know, God does restore Job in the end, and, uh, you know, there is hope. I guess kind of the last one is Psalm 4610, where it says, be still and know that I am God, because really the whole time it was, we, once we found out who was sick, you know, when bad things happen, generally you look for something that you can, you can do or a way to fix it, and in this case, we're not medical experts. The doctors didn't really know anything to do, and they said, it's out of our hands. We just have to try to figure it out. And at that point, we just kind of said it's, it's in God, God's hands and just had to kind of trust on him to, to provide for us. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that's interesting when, when we go through trial and difficulty is really the different perspectives that would be great for us to posture ourselves about how's this going to somehow give God glory, right? right. And there's three different ways. I mean, God getting glory from just the situation mm-hmm. And how it was handled, certainly in our own lives as we look in to what's God doing in me. You know, kind of like Paul said, I'm weak, but yet there's grace in me and power in me to, to, to press on. But also how it impacts other people as well. And this whole idea about this pain giving you some sort of platform of influence that, you know, it's nobody would want that for you. But somehow now you've got access into other people's lives that are hurting in a, in a similar way or have been through something similar. And I want you to tell our people here what God laid on your heart as far as like sure. a ministry moving forward yeah. that you can use to impact others. Okay. Yeah, um, part of it is this, is sharing our story because mm-hmm. we just felt like there's always going to be somebody that needs to hear that God is there even through the most terrible situations. And I really feel like we were brought to North Carolina for that reason because this area wasn't, we weren't really looking for jobs here. We weren't really, I don't know, we just knew we wanted to move but didn't know where or anything. And it just happened, Blake found several jobs to interview for and it just all, you know, we're here. 
last November, we've been really close to the folks at the hospital, and last November I spoke at an event for the hospital to share our story and to kind of just provide hope for other families that may be going through something similar. And currently we're working on a project with Maddox's doctors and nurses to provide memory bears for families that have lost a child in the NICU at UNC. We had these made after we lost him, and it's been great for our daughter especially. She calls him her brother bear. We just, you know, they're made out of the child's clothing or blankets if, you know, they had anything. Because um, one of the things that you mentioned that was so difficult in this kind of setting is the, the prospect of having to go return things to the right. store or, like, just all these memories and... This is, a, this is a pretty amazing way yeah. to preserve that in a very special right. way. And a lot of the babies are so small, they don't wear clothes. Maddox wore clothes for just a few days, mm-hmm. but he always had blankets. So that's one way, you know, that the families can hold on to that. And it's great for healing for the kids especially to mm-hmm. have something tangible. And so this is something that you've even been given a grant to do and right. expand. Yeah. And to have this ministry now to to countless other Right, so we can provide these bears to families at no cost to them. That's really awesome. Because that's one less thing they have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, you know, we also hope to be a support system for other families in the NICU while they're there Mm -hmm. or, you know, after if they do lose a child to help them grieve and mourn the way they need to and to also be supportive to their family and friends because they don't always know what to say or what not to say or what to do or not do. And so, I mean, that was, you know, we experienced people turning their backs on us and walking away and then people that were a little overbearing. So there is like a good middle ground. But I mean, and just another sign of God's faithfulness, we're currently expecting another boy this year in December. So. Mm -hmm. And how many, how many months along are you? I'm 30 weeks. So we're getting pretty close. And this was around the time, you know, that things started happening. So mm-hmm. we're just, we're grateful to be this far along yeah. and everything's perfect, so. Amen, yeah. well good. Well, I just wanna say to you guys that I am blown away by your courage and by your bravery and by your desire to share this with our church family. And it obviously just hurts our hearts to hear about this situation, right. to hear also that you had nobody right. to, to interact with, no spiritual community around yeah. you is especially difficult right but you guys have got that now yeah you do we're so thankful Mm -hmm. well we're so thankful for you guys thank you let's let's give these guys a hand for sharing I just want to close with with one verse as the band begins to come out to share with you guys this idea that pain brings a different sort of platform. This idea that tragedy allows you to have a voice into other people's lives when maybe it wasn't there before. Paul mentions this in the book of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the beginning, he talks about, man, we were so discouraged. We felt the sentence of death in our hearts. We wanted to give up. We, in essence, wanted to die. Nobody was helping us, and it was so discouraging, and we just wanted to cash the whole thing in. But Paul says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Notice this next part. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves 
are comforted by God. So Paul's saying the, the issues that we went through, it wasn't just about me. Paul's saying I could have been selfish and I could have, um, you know, just lashed out in anger and I could have, you know, been so discouraged. But instead, Paul's seeing the bigger picture and saying God allowed us to experience this so that we can also comfort others because of what we've been through. And I guess my encouragement um, to you here this morning, no matter what you're going through, uh, when God seems heartless, when God seems distant, when God seems indifferent, if anything, the cross proves that that's not true. No other religion besides Christianity has the center of their religion humbling himself, becoming vulnerable, becoming a man, and experiencing everything that we've been through, according to the book of Hebrews. We've got that kind of God. If you've been abandoned, if you're physically feeling pain, if you've experienced loss, Jesus had all of those things as well. If anything, it cannot prove, the cross cannot prove that God is indifferent. It proves that God cares and that God loves. And the amazing part of the story with Blake and Aaron is that they went through this and they experienced this heartache and this pain that many of us haven't gone to that level. But God proved to be the God of all comfort to them so that they might be able to comfort others. So no matter what you're going through here this morning, and I don't know where any of this message lands on you or any of these points, any of these ideas about like, man, we are living in a broken, cursed world. It's a lot more like Egypt than it is like Eden. Or the idea that there is difficulty, but man, God is gonna bring you somehow deeper and pour out grace upon your situation. Or this idea that there's now a platform and God can even redemptively use no matter what it is in somebody else's life. So no matter where you are in that, we want you to know as a church that we love you and we're here for you. And we want to pray with you and we want to stand next to you. And like it talks about in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 and following that we want to bear one another's burdens. So let me just pray for us now before we sing together. Father, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, this morning I just come to you. I just come to you with a heavy heart for our country, for our land, for our world. Lord, for individuals within our body that have been ravaged by disease and cancer and heartbreak and loss. Even this morning, God, we just pray for the Connor family with sweet little Ryland experiencing asthma and having to go to the emergency room. And we could go on and on, Lord, with the number of people that are struggling and right in the middle of it. And Father, we come before you, and God, we trust you. And Lord, we recognize that you are great. And Father, we just want to sing to you and recognize, God, that we have assurance in who you are. So just lead us and guide us, we pray. In your son's name, amen.